going to ask you to keep standing because we're going to turn right into the gospel this morning. I'm inviting you to turn with me to the 11th chapter of the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 11, and I'd like to read, or, or Luke 6, I'm, I apologize, we're going to read down through verse 11, although I think it's uh, only the verse, uh, first uh, 10 verses are actually on the screen, but I think I'm going to add the 11th verse, uh, makes the sermon longer, but uh, that's a good thing. Okay, right, right? By the way, uh, if you do end up bringing chocolate to the uh, homecoming, we'll probably have to take that, okay? And, uh, uh, you know, Reese's and Snickers are especially, you can bring those by, and I'll just make sure that, that we take good care of it, okay? So just know that. Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. When One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another, on another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there, and then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, save life or destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. Let me also add verse 11. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. May God add this blessing to his word. Thank you. You can be seated. If you've been with us through the month of August, we have been talking about learning to lead like Jesus. And I hope through these series of messages that Maybe you're just catching a vision for yourself of how God is calling you to lead, that, that God doesn't just call us to follow him, although he certainly does that, but he also calls us to step up, to step out, to make a difference in our world for his kingdom. I also think there's a secondary viewpoint of these messages. I hope it will also influence you, not only in the church's sphere, but in the secular sphere. That It would help you think carefully about the leaders you choose. I fear the church today has a rather warped view, very often, of what godly leadership should look like. And so the last few weeks, we've talked about the heart of a leader, that, that heart begins with a heart for God and a heart for other people. Well, last Sunday, we talked about the head of a leader. And so we are called to have the mind of Christ, to think as Christ thinks. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And what that means is that basically what's going on inside of us is always going to work itself outside of us. 
In fact, in this chapter, Jesus makes that point very directly. In verse 45, he says this. He is teaching and he says, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Now that should cause us all pause about what we say and what we do. It's a result of what we take in and what is coming out of us. Now this morning, I wanna go beyond the heart of a leader and beyond the head of a leader and let's talk about the hands of a leader. I don't know what your hands look like this morning. If you took a look at the, take a look at them, I wonder what you'd see. A few years ago, I was at my home church, Fulton Creek Church, a friend's church. That's where I grew up, and we were a visiting family, and I, it was just before Christmas, so we were watching a Christmas cantata, and a number of my family members were in the, uh, in the cantata. Well, I was interested to find out after the service, a gentleman who was sitting right behind me, whom I did not know, he, he, he stopped me and he said, you know, I was looking at your hands during the service. You must be either a politician or a teacher. Well, I thought that was interesting, but you know, it began to make sense as I thought about it, because in that particular community, it's a farming community, that's what they do. Their hands are calloused and dirty, greasy and grimy, and, and he looked at my hands and he says, those aren't the hands that I usually see. And, and he noticed how very soft and, you know, I'm not sure that was flattering, by the way. His hands were calloused and rough, and my hands told him something about me. And, Again, I'm not sure it was all that nice, but when I told him I was a pastor, he instantly got it. He understood. My point there is our hands represent our behavior. Our hands often tell what we do. When we talked about the heart and the head, our primary area of discussion is on what we feel and what we think, but the hands, they're about what we do, our behavior. And the truth is that once our head and our heart are in alignment, there ought to be a change in our behavior. What we think about, what we feel, ought to have an impact on what we do. The hands of a leader who follows Jesus should look like his hands. Well, what does that mean exactly? Well, let's think about that as we examine Luke chapter 6. Beginning with verse 1, we... Uh, read this. On the Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some of the grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? So the Pharisees apparently are just following Jesus all around, watching for them to make a mistake. The disciples and Jesus are leisurely going through a grain field on the Sabbath, rubbing it in their hands. They're, they're taking some of the stalks and, and rubbing them so that the chaff goes off of the kernel, and then they're just eating the kernel. But of course, the problem is this, that it's the Sabbath. And according to their interpretation of the Mosaic law, that was work. They were harvesting and threshing, a big no-no on the holy day. And so these Pharisees get up all riled about this. They're pointing us out. They're legalists to the brim. 
Someone defined a legalist as a person who is afraid that someone somewhere is actually enjoying himself. And I'm convinced, you look at these lives, and these legalists were determined to suck the joy out of everyone's life, including their own. But Jesus, he's not going to have any of this. His hands become hands of protection. He shields the disciples from this unnecessary abuse. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now notice here, Jesus makes a rather provocative statement. He says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. This is my day, it's my day, and I can tell them what to do and what not to do. I, I want you to note right there that never say that Jesus never claimed to be Lord because we see it very clearly right here. But I also want to make this point. Let's say you're driving down a, a street and you come to an intersection and you go through that intersection and you notice that the light turns yellow. Now, what does the light turning yellow mean? It means go faster, right? That's what it, it means. But as you're going through that light, you also know, just as you look up, the light has turned red. And as you're looking at that, you notice that there is a policeman right there ready to you know ready to see he's seen it all suddenly your heart's skipping a beat you think man i am in trouble i know this doesn't look good but as you were thinking about that you looked in your rear view mirror there's a guy who also went through that light and he was just right behind you now what are you feeling at that point relief right because if anyone is going to get stopped, it's going to be the guy behind you. He's a whole lot more guilty than you were. He's going to be the one who gets it, right? And so Jesus kind of makes this point here. He says, listen, Pharisees, you never found fault with David, your hero, who ate consecrated bread in the tabernacle because he and his friends were hungry. It would be like this morning, you know, the, the bread is covered up. If I suddenly uncovered the table and found that the bread was gone because, because someone like, like Jack Yeager got up here and was hungry and wanted a snack before the service. How awful that would have been. Jesus is making the point, you, you, you're, you've messed this up. You never say a critical word about what David did, and yet isn't that a whole lot worse than picking and eating a few seeds of grain on the Sabbath? Get real. That's in the Greek, actually, right, right there. <laughs> a leader isn't afraid to protect those he loves. Parents, you know about this. It's instinctive. I appreciate this illustration. Jerry Clower is a comedian, and he says that his own son was the place kicker on a really good football team in high school. He says, in an all-important game, his son missed a critical field goal attempt, and wouldn't you know it, a loudmouth fan sitting about three rows up in front of Clower started ripping on his son and calling him, loser, choker, you can imagine. 
Well, Jerry Clower is a big man in his own right. He has a rather short temper, and he sat there just fuming the whole time. In fact, after the game was over, he, he couldn't help himself, but he went over to that big mouth critic. And Jerry tried to be imposing and towered over him, and this is what he said. He said, sir, I want you to know that Jesus Christ saved your life tonight. And the guy said, well, what are you talking about? And Clower said, if I hadn't become a Christian a few years ago when I heard you bad-mouthing my son, I would have killed you tonight. But Jesus Christ saved your life. You know, we, uh, we have some new neighbors in our neighborhood who moved in at the end of the street, and we haven't got to know them very well yet. But uh, earlier this week, my daughter Faith was outside and she noticed and heard commotion going on at that lot, and it really was more than that. It was a very intense argument. Well, uh, before long, the couple who were fighting took the argument inside, and, but she could still hear it going on. There were some bangs and bumps, and, and she got apparently very intense, and so she called 911. Well, the police came. It looks like there was an arrest made, a few hours later, Faith and my son Micah, they'd both gone off to school this weekend, but both of them had just gotten home from somewhere, and uh, a number of gentlemen, I don't know, it was three or four guys, uh, knew that Faith had made this call, and suddenly they kind of very imposingly want to talk to her. They step up, they step out. Well, my son Micah is right there. Now, he's shorter than I am, but, but he has a big heart. And so he moved in front, stood up for his sister, and said, no, is there something I could do? You know, it was just amazing that that, that, that guy was willing to stand up for his, his, uh, his little sister. I'm very, very proud of him. Because love, Bible says, in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, always protects. Jesus used his hands to protect his children. I remember one of the stories in the Gospels that we read is how Jesus took his hands and he used cords to fashion into a whip in the temple to drive out the money changers. He reminds me as a pastor and as an elder or a leader in our church, we are responsible for protecting this place, this community. We see that in the New Testament often. Our job as leaders is to protect the church from false teaching that can spread like gangrene. And we've had to do that from time to time. Maybe it's flagrant immorality, like yeast can contaminate the whole loaf. Maybe it's a divisive spirit. It's hurting morale and the energy of the community and needs to be confronted. Maybe it's shielding the flock from abusive and unhealthy leadership. A good leader is perceptive to the danger and isn't afraid to confront when it's necessary to do so. And by the way, that's never easy. In fact, it's probably the hardest part about being a pastor. Uh, it's an area where I've certainly fallen short many times. We, we don't like to confront people because we don't want to cause waves. We think maybe it'll just go away. We're people pleasers. Many, many pastors and, and leaders overall are, are wanting to please people. We want to be liked and 
we, we don't want to feel bad afterward. But you know, the Bible is clear. We have to be willing to confront that which is harmful. Jesus said, for instance, in one place, uh, in, in Matthew, if you have anything against your brother, you go to him personally and tell him his fault just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. So we know this, a Christ-like leader's hands have to be hands of protection sometimes. But the second thing I, I take note of here is that Jesus also had healing hands. Let's look at verse 6. On another Sabbath, he went to the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Now let me just right out of the gate here make two observations. One is this. Here you have the, uh, the Pharisees, and they must be doing a lot of investigative work, wouldn't you say, on the Sabbath. Their eyes are peeled. They're just waiting. They're doing work themselves by, by waiting for the disciples and Jesus to make a mistake. But secondly, can you imagine being so dark in your heart, so corrupt in your spirit, that when you come to church, you are so hardened by evil, you say, I sure hope they don't do any healing today. That's the kind of darkness that these Pharisees were under. Jesus cares about people, and that is his, always his, his greatest priority. And he notices this dynamic that is going on while he is teaching. Maybe this man is there with his shriveled hand. It comes maybe from a work accident. Maybe it was a birth defect. Maybe, maybe it's just carpal tunnel. We don't know. But it's impacted this life, and it's made a difference, and it, it, it's, it's bothering him dramatically. But, but something is going on there, because here these, they are, these sniveling Pharisees who are on the fringe, just watching to wait to see what happens, wondering if Jesus is going to do something good on the Sabbath. And I think the point needs to be made. Listen, friends, if you step out to lead, if, if, if you do something good, there is always going to be someone there to criticize you. You know, it, it's almost inevitable. No matter how good a thing, there's always a group of people who are going to say, well, I could have done it better, or it shouldn't have been done that way at all. It is so easy, and, and so many times, there is always a group of people who would just rather sit in the shadows, gripe and complain about how you would have done things differently. I've been in ministry long enough to know that the world is full of people like that. But what Jesus calls his people to do is to step out, to step up and actually make a difference. The problem is, those people can wear you down you hear it so much, you get discouraged. They can bring you to a point where you say, you know what, it's not worth it. I'm not going to do good anymore. In fact, it occurs to me this morning that maybe in this place right now, maybe at some point in your life, you stepped out, you tried to make a difference, you stepped up in some way in leadership, and you got hurt. Someone criticized you. 
Someone, maybe it was legitimate, maybe it wasn't, but it hurt you. And you said, I'm done. Never again. I'm never going to put myself in a vulnerable position ever again. Let me remind you of Jesus today. Jesus didn't let that fact keep him from doing what was right. He never let the critics have the last say. Verse 8, it says, But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? And he looked around at them all and then said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. You see, when Jesus touches people, he healed them. Again and again in the Gospels, think about how many times Jesus touched people. You think about the untouchable lepers, Jesus touches them, and they're healed and made whole. He touched the blind eyes of a beggar, and he could see he touched the ears of a deaf person and he could hear. At one point he touched the body, the lifeless body of a little girl and she got up. Jim McGinnis tells the story about an American soldier in Italy in World War II. As he tells the story, he says this American soldier doing his duty was going through the mountains when he suddenly came upon a statue of Jesus. The, the weeds were rather tall, but as he parted the weeds to examine the statue, he noticed that the hands of Jesus were broken off and nowhere to be found. You know, as he sat there thinking about what he had just seen, an inspiration came to him. He pulled out a piece of paper and he wrote something on that paper and placed it under a rock on the base of that statue. He was giving that statue a six-word name. He named it this. I have no hands but yours. I have no hands but yours. Stacy Bush is an assistant in classrooms working with at-risk students which often exhibit very difficult behavior. Stacy, most of you know her. She serves on our worship team, has been faithful for many, many years. Well, last spring, in doing her duty in the classroom, she was suddenly hit by one of the students. In fact, it was, it was uh, an assault, and it uh, damaged her hand, her left hand. She went to the emergency. I talked to her this week, and she was just feeling her hand, and I, I noticed it, and I said, well, how is your hand doing? And she said, well, it's never been the same. It hurts, it doesn't function nearly as well as it used to. I recently became aware that her school last spring awarded her the Positive Education Program, Laura Recca Aspire to Excellence Award. Now that's a mouthful. But this award was named in honor of a teacher who years ago accompanied some students to Huntington Beach when one of the students was caught in a riptide and the teacher lost her life 
trying to save a student. That award had been given to Stacy in honor of the work that she had done. And I loved what Stacy told me this week. She said, you know, I can't talk about Jesus in my job. And even when I received this award, I couldn't say very much about my faith. But I loved this quote. But no one can stop me from being like Jesus to my staff and students. I have no hands but yours. I think about next week with the homecoming and the parade and all that we're going to be involved with, and it's a busy weekend for a lot of us. You know, we're going to be exhibiting our hands, passing out candy, helping pass out the school bags at the booth, helping people sign up for various things, the fireworks, the ice cream, all of those things represent our hands. Why do we do that? Because we care. That's what a church should do. I have no hands but yours. I, I said something in the first service. I think I'm going to say it here too. God placed a, a family in our church on my heart in May. They've been a part of our church ever since COVID. I, I'm not going to embarrass them by pointing them out. But the Lord said to me clearly in May, Jeff, you need to get them a car. Lord, uh, that's a big order. They lost their daughter. Uh, she was 17, I believe, when she was murdered about five years ago. Uh, they have two sons. Um, younger and dad just discovered that he has kidney cancer when they lost their daughter i think it's fair to say that the depression caused them to maybe fall behind in some ways in their finances and it's been a, a hard road that they've had to take and right now they have a car but they pay 750 dollars a month for a rent a wreck and it's really too much. It's one easy way that, man, if they didn't have that cost, they would be able to, to take care of so many other things, including going to doctor's appointments and the work that's necessary to, to keep the finances. And so the Lord said, Jeff, you need to get him a car. And I've been thinking about that and praying about it and talking to some of you. And I just feel led this morning, maybe you'd like to help us. Maybe we could do that together. If, if you would like to help, just put it on your, your, your uh, envelope and put something like car, and we'll make sure that it, it gets toward that. I, I'm thinking we're needing around $8,500 to see it happen. If we can raise those funds, I'm going to tell you, we get to change a life. We get to change lives. We get to change a family. And uh, I, I wish we could do that more often. But as I remember, sometimes you just do for one what you would like to do for many. And uh, so if you'd like to participate, that would be wonderful. Because God is teaching us to use our hands to care for people. So in this passage, I, I would have you think about the fact that Jesus had hands of protection. Jesus also had hands of healing, but... I want you to notice here that Luke ends this story with this ominous phrase. He says, the Pharisees were furious, and in their anger, he says, they discussed together what they might do to Jesus. 
Of course, we know the story. We know what they did to Jesus. I told you when I thought uh, back to that gentleman's conversation many years ago at that Christmas cantata, how he noticed my hands and how he noticed how soft they were. Well, as I was thinking about this sermon, it occurred to me, you know, Jesus' hands are now and forevermore scarred. As the ultimate demonstration of his sacrifice and love, his hands were nailed to a cross. The Roman spikes held him there. He bled and died for my sin. But God demonstrated his love for us that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But that isn't where it ended. You recall the story, and this is in the Gospel of Luke as well. After the crucifixion, two disciples are on the road to Emmaus. They were getting themselves out of Jerusalem because they had seen Jesus crucified there on Calvary, and they thought, we need to get out of town because our lives may be in danger. Further, I think they were just hopeless. Their hope was gone. They had put their hope in Jesus. Now he was dead, and they, what they believed was a lie. And so they just had to get on with their lives. But somewhere along the road, you'll remember, they meet a stranger. And they begin to talk to him. And they're amazed at his ability to expound on the scriptures and what, what this stranger tells them about the Messiah. They don't know who he is. And they convince him, will you stay with us? Our hearts are burning within us as you've explained these scriptures to us. Will you just stay with us a little while longer? And the stranger agrees to stay, and they go into this inn, and you remember they break bread. And as they break the bread, they see the hands of Jesus. And suddenly they know who he is. Suddenly they know he's alive. My Redeemer lives. I think about Thomas, the disciple. He hears the stories, the rumors that Jesus is alive. He says, I'm not going to believe it until what? Until I see his hands and his side, until I put my finger in the hole of his hands and his side. I will not believe. And Jesus shows up. And Thomas sees the hands and he feels the hands and he says, my Lord and my God, I know that my Redeemer lives. You see, the hands of Jesus, more than, more than anything, should give us hope this morning. Those scars that he has forever on his hands remind us that God has conquered evil. My Redeemer, your Redeemer lives. The hands of our God are the story of his love for you and for me and the leader in godlike fashion in the in the shadow of Jesus must stand and proclaim that God is alive he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete that work you are his craftsmanship everything is going to be okay ultimately Listen, because of the hands of Jesus, what we see represented there is this. It doesn't mean that we will never face pain. It doesn't mean that we will never experience loss. It doesn't mean that we will not want at times. 
But I think of what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, what shall separate us from the love of God? Trouble? No. Hardship? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. All those things may come, but we are more than conquerors. And so as people who follow Christ, we should live like it and act like it and love like it and give like it. Work like it and pray like it because the hands that were nailed to the cross while forever scarred, they are alive and they're working today. The hands of a leader must be the hands of hope. And so I ask you this morning, when people see your hands, what do they see? Do they see hands of protection? Hands of healing, hands of hope, hands working for the Father's glory. As we break the bread together, may we see him again. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to this table, I thank you for the, for the very visual impact of those scarred hands. We thank you that in your sacrifice we are made free. In your light and love, Lord, we are given hope and the energy to keep on keeping on, to not grow weary in doing good. Help us, Lord, to be faithfully busy about our Father's work. May our hands be calloused from the way we love, the way we work, the way we honor you. As we come to this table, Lord, as we break this bread together, May we just sense your presence in a powerful way. Lord, there are some who need, their, need your hand of protection right now. They're going through a battle. They wonder if you've forgotten them. Remind them, Lord, of your grace. There are some, Lord, who need a hand of healing. They cry out for your mercy and grace and power and miracle work. I pray, Lord that they would not walk away disappointed, but they would know the healing grace comes from you. And then, Father, there are some who need to be reminded of the hope of heaven, that, Lord, we have a hope that cannot be diminished or taken away. May your hands remind us of that hope of life eternal because you died on the cross that we might live forever. And so, Lord, we are yours. Take our hands and use them for your glory. Would you pray this prayer with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.